Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It can be found on page 857 in your pew Bible, but also on the screens behind me. The birth of Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, who was betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2 as we pray together this morning begin our journey uh, through Advent. God, we are so grateful for all that you've done for us, for the thousands and thousands of things that you do for us every day to provide for our needs and protect us from harm that perhaps we don't even know about. But one thing we do know, Lord, is that you have gathered us together this morning for your good purposes, and so we ask that you would carry them out that in our midst you would open our ears to hear your voice from the book of Luke and to receive with joy the good news that your son was born into the world to become our Savior. We pray all these things, Lord, in the name of your son. Amen. Well, throughout history, <clears throat> the births of kings and queens has been marked by things like national celebrations, announcements, and even the establishment of new holidays. From European monarchies to Chinese dynasties to nomadic tribes, the arrival of future rulers has been proclaimed from one side of the realm to the other, understood as the good news that God has provided, the one that he has appointed for leadership and authority. In medieval England, town criers would walk the streets ringing a bell to let people know that a prince or princess had been born. Today, there are no town criers in Britain, as far as I know, but when Prince George was born in 2013, there were 19 million Facebook posts about it, and at one point, evidently, there were 25,000 tweets about him being posted every minute. When the Prince of Bhutan was born just a few years ago, that nation celebrated by planting 108,000 trees from one side of that country to the other. Because even today, the birth of those who will sit on thrones is something that people pay attention to. In different ways and for different reasons, people mark the birth of rulers. So when a king was born, whose realm would extend not just over an island or a region or over an empire, but to all the earth and to the heavens above, it would make sense for there to be a corresponding response. He was a king unlike any that the world has ever known, whose coming was long awaited and whose authority is incomparable and unrivaled. Such a king deserves a celebration unlike any other. 
something that reflects his stature and his glory and the joy of those under his rule. A celebration that the world would notice and then join in, but that is not what happened when Jesus Christ was born. The king who rules above all kings and over everything that exists arrived in the world in obscurity. Even though it's a familiar story, something that we're so used to hearing every Christmas season that it seems ordinary to us, it's a stunning reversal of expectations. Even the scripture that comes right before our passage in Luke chapter 2 builds those anticipations of just how this king will arrive. In chapter 1, Jesus' birth was foretold by angelic messengers who explained to Mary that her child would be the son of God who will inherit the ancestral throne of David and then rule for all time. He will be the answer to people's hopes and fears and the redeemer of God's people. And based on that introduction... Based on that lead-in, we might assume that his arrival would be just a spectacle, something that everyone would notice and that would be widely celebrated. But as we see here in the opening of chapter 2, there is no fanfare, no nationwide celebration. Instead, the king of kings was born among more sheep than supplicants. The birth of Jesus Christ, what we see here in Luke chapter 2, sets the stage for his entire rule as the king of kings and of the character of his kingdom as a whole. The passage opens with a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. He's ordered a census of the Roman Empire, a kingdom that is so vast that Augustus refers to it as all the world. And since the Roman Empire fully encompassed the Mediterranean Sea, it was as far across as North America uh, we can see his, his ego here in referring to his empire as all the world, but he hasn't really missed by all that much. In the first century, a quarter of the world's population lived under Augustus's rule. So we can forgive him by referring to it as all the world. That census required a young man living in Galilee to travel back home to his hometown of Bethlehem, and along with him, his wife-to-be, a young woman named Mary, who by this time was many months into the pregnancy that the angelic uh, 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 messenger had told her about in chapter 1. They would need to make a long journey south over mountains and across a desert to reach Bethlehem. But Caesar Augustus, he had the sort of authority that could command such a disruption to people's lives. There had never been in the history of humankind anyone with the sort of power that Caesar Augustus had. And it was his name, Augustus, that explains why. He received this name, Augustus, when he ascended to the throne. Originally, Augustus was an an honorific title that was reserved for specific use in religious ceremonies. It was associated with the nobility of the gods and goddesses of Rome. So when the Senate officially, officially recognized Rome's new leader as Augustus, It was propaganda that they used to make the point that this man was either endorsed by the gods or was one himself. And so with this new name, Caesar took on the authority of heaven, claiming a divine throne in addition to his earthly one. It was a strategy, a strategy that helped to secure his position of power because people understood 
based on the name Augustus, based on the associations that they made with that name, that a challenge to him meant a challenge to the gods themselves. So he had command over every aspect of life, so much so that he even renamed a month on the calendar that we still use today. So an empire-wide registration was a simple matter of giving the order. Based on the fact that Jesus is described as the Son of God in chapter 1 and the, and the king that God has appointed to rule on David's throne, Luke seems to be inviting a comparison between Jesus, the king, and Caesar, the one who rules in Rome. Luke wants to tell the story of Jesus' birth in a way that illustrates the differences between these two rulers. Both have great power and authority, but they use it very differently. Augustus could and did completely disrupt the lives of countless people with the stroke of a pen. That disruption extended to the province of Syria, which included a region named Judea and a town called Bethlehem and the hometown of a poor carpenter named Joseph. So that when they received the order, he and Mary made an 80-mile journey south so that they could be counted along with everyone else. It meant lost wages for them, which is something they did not have much margin for. And on top of all of that, their child is expected to be born at any time. So this trip was not a walk in the park. When I asked Jess what it would be like to go for an 80-mile hike when she was eight months pregnant, she used words like miserable and the worst. There's no consensus among scholars about whether Mary would have had a donkey to ride or whether she would have made her way on foot. Some think that Mary and Joseph were just too poor to have an animal like that at their disposal. Others think there's just simply no way that she would have been able to physically make the journey unless she had a donkey to ride. What everyone agrees on is that it was incredibly difficult, uncomfortable, and stressful regardless of how she traveled. So when they do finally arrive in Bethlehem, they are exhausted, ready to collapse into a bed. Except Luke tells us there was no place for them. They had no lodging, no place to rest and recover from their long journey. Whatever guest rooms there were in Bethlehem are full already, apparently. So they make their way to a stable where at least they'll be able to keep warm. And of course, of course, it's while they're there that Mary realizes that the baby is coming. Even under ideal circumstances. A baby's arrival is a little bit of a chaotic and stressful thing. Mary looks around the straw-covered floor and takes it all in. This is where her son will be born. It's hard for us to conceive of a lowlier welcome into the world than that. It surely isn't the situation that Mary wanted to be in. It is not the life that she imagined for her son. And later, as she lays him down to sleep in a feeding trough, some part of her mind must have drifted back to the night that she was visited by an angel, when she learned that the child in her womb was God's own son, in whom the radiance of all heaven would shine forth into the world. And, and she wondered, why in the world was he here, in this dirty, smelly stable? in this backwater town, and part of a poor and oppressed family. This is a child who deserves royal robes, 
a joyful welcome, and a kingdom-wide celebration, the praise of those that he has come to govern. But instead, the night of his birth included none of those things. Scripture tells us that he will ascend to glory one day. He will receive honor and praise one day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. That is coming, but not before the stable, not before the majesty of heaven was laid in a manger, the beginning of a humble life that will lead to the cross, where his glory will be revealed. Not in the finest palace, not in a military conquest, not with the most ornate crown or in the praise of his people, but in his mercy, in the giving of his life, the exchange of his life for people who had rebelled against him and rejected his rule. Unlike Augustus, who changed his name so that everyone would think he was glorious, Jesus' glory is revealed in his willing descent to the very lowest place. The circumstances of his birth, these unfortunate events that have led to him being born in a stable in Bethlehem, they did not come about as a result of bad luck or unfortunate timing. It didn't even ultimately happen because Caesar Augustus had ordered the census, even though that was true. Instead, we know that God has providentially organized every detail in order to reveal how Jesus is a better king than any that the world has ever known. God wants us to see, in the way that he was born, the sort of king that he will be. For Caesar, there was no real concern for Mary or for Joseph or for the child that they were expecting. They were poor Jews from an unimportant, troublesome corner of the empire. What did matter to him was the tax revenue that they represented. And that is the pattern of earthly rulers that they rule to take. The old axiom that absolute power corrupts absolutely is true. Human beings were designed to carry the responsibility of authority. That is true. We were designed to carry the responsibility of authority. We see that in the mandate that God gave to Adam in the Garden of Eden. But when sin entered the picture, our ability to carry authority well was compromised. Before sin, leadership and authority were responsibilities. And after sin, they became opportunities. We see it throughout Scripture in figures like Caesar and Herod and Pharaoh and most of the Israelite kings. We see it throughout human history and the tendencies of all people to use power for self-preservation and self-interest. It's something that God had warned his people about long before the events of this passage, long before Caesar Augustus took the throne and started pushing people around. Back in the book of 1 Samuel, the people at the beginning of that book, of the, the people of Israel at the beginning of that book had no king. Instead, they were led by judges who were appointed by God to rule for specific seasons. Samuel was one of those judges, the last one. But the people of Israel wanted a king. They wanted to be like all of their neighbors, the nations that they could see across the borders. They all had kings, and Israel says, we want a king like everyone else has. Samuel tries to talk them out of it, but they are undeterred. It was a serious thing for them to demand a king because God knew what it meant for these people, that they were not just rejecting Samuel's leadership as a judge, they were ultimately re rejecting God's leadership. They were exchanging God as their king for someone else. 
They wanted to exchange the rule of a righteous king for a king whose heart was corrupt and tainted by sin. People will have the king that they're asking for, but not before God gave them a warning about just who it is that they were inviting to sit on the throne. Lengthy quote from 1 Samuel says this, when God warns the people, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He says, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. He will appoint them for himself, commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and donkeys, and he will put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king. It's a long passage, but it's worth reading aloud because it's hard to miss just how many times that God tells his people that this king will take from them. He will take and take and take. He will use his power to serve himself, and he will do it at their expense. The people have seen the truth of that. That warning, they've seen the truth of it play out again and again and again, and now 11 centuries later, it's playing out on an imperial scale from Britain to the Arabian Peninsula. But even if we take into account that not all rulers are total despots, Scripture helps us to see that no human being is fit to carry the responsibility of this type of authority. God didn't mention any specific ruler in his warning in 1 Samuel because the temptation to use power for personal gain is present in every person, in every position of authority. The problem is not to do with thrones or rulers or authority itself, but with human nature. History is full of examples of rulers who embody the selfishness that God warned these people about. That doesn't mean that all rulers or leaders are as wicked as they might be. There are some who, by God's grace, rule well, who lead with concern for the people under their authority. Not everyone is like Caesar Augustus, but even the best Even the best earthly rulers are far from perfect. We're reminded of that in our passage from Luke chapter 2, when Luke tells us that Joseph is in the lineage of David, who was Israel's greatest and most beloved king. He was the best of the best. But David was far from perfect, and his reign is stained with the blood of his own self-interested abuse of power. We often romanticize the journey to Bethlehem. We've, we paint pictures in our minds of, of cute animals attending the birth of Jesus in the stable. But we should not overlook the ways that this passage reminds us that God's warning about kings is true. From a palace in Rome, Augustus has given a command and a burden to his people. Jesus, by contrast, stood up from his throne and stepped down to dwell among his people, and to lift from their shoulders the burden of guilt and condemnation. And in that way, this passage helps us to recognize the promise, God's promise, of a better king than any that we've ever known. In the manner of his coming, Jesus reminds us that God has never neglected the need of his people. Centuries earlier, before Jesus was born, God assured David that one day one of his descendants would be established as a king. 
He shall build a house for my name, God said, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God's promise is to 